couple of things to mention. Uh, you will know that in just a few weeks' time we'll be um, having a members' meeting, at which time a name will be brought uh, before us to vote on with regard to our um, new associate pastor. Uh, I'm pleased to announce that the person we'll be issuing a call to, should the uh, membership of the church agree, will be Mark Hockey. Uh, some of you may have met him before. He's, he's visited the church once or twice. Uh, he has preached here and, uh, and he's currently a student at um, BST, Brisbane School of Theology. So Mark Hockey will be the name we'll bring before the church. Members will receive a letter during the week to um, officially um, put forward the motion so that you, you're given the appropriate notice and then when the meeting takes place we'll be um, voting on that potential call. So it gives you time to pray over that and to consider. Uh, one other, or two other things actually. Some of you might be aware that uh, it's Baptist World AIDS 60th anniversary and their theme for the 60th uh, anniversary is End Poverty. Uh, one of the things they've uh, done is they've created an app which you can uh, download to your phone or tablet and uh, feel free to do that. I'm just letting you know it's there, it's available. Just uh, go into Google Play or um, iThingies, whatever those things are that you get stuff like that from and uh, you can download that app. I, I did it last night uh, using the Google one because I don't have Apple because it's too expensive. Um, <laughs> so... Well, you're a school teacher after all. And I do have a, a Darth Vader uh, lunchbox, by the way. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I actually had one that looked like um, a steam train, just the, the cabin and the engine. And uh, other teachers thought that my grandchildren must have got that for me, but I actually got it for myself. <laughs> uh, the other thing to um, just be aware of is that Third Monday Talks begins again in February... It uh, normally would be on the 18th of Feb, which is strangely enough the third Monday, but to have it on that day would be to compete with the Franklin Graham evangelistic event. So uh, we have decided to change the title of the third Monday talks for February and actually shift it so it's the third Monday talks held on Wednesday. <laughs> it's a long title, but it makes it memorable. So just be aware of that. So third Monday talks in Feb will be on, the, on Wednesday of the same week that the third Monday is on. Okay, everyone got it? Uh, and the speaker this time will be uh, David French, who's going to give us an overview of the various views with regard to the end times. The following uh, uh, third Monday talk, which will be on third Monday in, in uh, March, will be looking at the issue of euthanasia. Okay, so I think that's uh, all the announcements I have for the time being. So... I'm going to read from John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible handy, you could uh, open it up to John chapter 4. And we're going to begin with verse 7. Uh, you'll be aware that Jesus has um, just met with uh, Nicodemus and he's travelling further and he heads off via Samaria and he goes to the city or a town really of Sychar. And uh, he meets a woman at a well. So verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, 
asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Just have the first slide up and we'll get started from there. So I've entitled my uh, sermon today, P.T. Barnum, Messiah. I want to just um, ask, because apparently there are some folk who may not have heard of Phineas Taylor Barnum. Could, just have an indication. Okay, well, well, thanks for that. Um, this little sermon will be utterly meaningless to you. But just, just try to keep up anyway, it's okay. Um, one of the things I hope to prove in the context of this sermon, apart from stuff about Jesus, is that even men can enjoy musicals. <laughs> now, I was looking at uh, Jeff Rickman down here just before me and realised as I looked that he actually looks a lot like Hugh Jackman. No, There's minor differences, but not many. Same hair colour, similar height, dashing good looks. <laughs> but you'll find out why we call the sermon this as we go. The account of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well is set in the context of brokenness. There's kind of a big picture element to this. And there's an individualised, personalised element to this, something that's realised and demonstrated in the life 
of an individual and one's personal individual life experience. Back in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Israel, the northern state, that um, was of a, an already divided kingdom. And they took over the land and exiled a significant portion of the population. Then in 586 BC, the Babylonians invaded the southern part of Israel, which is called Judah, destroyed the temple and exiled many of Judah's people. And the people remaining in the northern kingdom intermarried with the Canaanites and mingled their Jewish religious belief with Canaanite religious belief and they formed a syncretistic religion. And as a consequence, by the time of Jesus, the Jews saw the Samaritans as racially inferior heretics. And so this, broadly speaking, is really the the world into which Jesus stepped as he met this woman in the Samaritan town of Sychar. It was a broken world characterised by racial and religious divisions. But these weren't the only barriers that confronted Jesus at this point in time. Jesus, a, a Jewish man, asked a Samaritan woman for a drink. Such a thing was far from normal. In fact, it would be considered quite scandalous for a Jewish man to even speak to a woman he didn't know, especially a Samaritan woman, in a public place. So we can add to the list of divisions gender. And there's more. This particular woman to whom Jesus spoke was a woman of questionable moral standing. She came to the well in the middle of the day. Women would normally fetch water in the morning when it was still cool. This suggests the woman was a social outcast, rejected by her community for reasons we discover as we read on a link to her relationships with men. In speaking with such a woman, Jesus was doing something morally, socially and culturally radical. This encounter between the Samaritan woman and Jesus occurs then in a context of brokenness, in a context of sin, of rejection and of marginalisation. I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that this is a kind of a a microcosmic representation of the world and how the world is. And it shows the impact of such a world on humanity by telling us something of the life experience of a particular woman, a particular point in time, one to whom Jesus goes particularly to meet. You get the impression that even though she's a real individual living in a specific geographical location at a particular point in time, that John uses her story to represent something universal. The brokenness of the world, the brokenness of human beings living in that world and the longing that is so much a part of the human condition in a fallen world. And in this way the story continues to speak to us because we're the same people. We live in a broken world. We have the same kinds of longings and desires at the depth of our being. And we can too be offered the living water that is offered by Jesus to the Samaritan woman. So by showing both the brokenness of the world and the impact such a world has in the life of an individual human being, John demonstrates that Jesus is able to deal with the barriers that are part of the human condition in a fallen world. Barriers of race, gender, culture, religion, morality and social status. This is the world in which we live. Broken, divided with the haves and the have-nots. A world characterised by sin and selfishness. 
We cannot simply get, uh, get away with declaring ourselves victims of such a world for we too are sinful. We too want to live by our own rules without recourse to God or deference before God. Some of us might have uh, seen a rather popular movie in recent times, Greatest Showman. So you can see the figure in the middle there, that's Hugh Jackman, look at Jeff. Almost the same really, except that Jeff hasn't shaved. It's one of the most uh, popular films of recent times. It grossed in excess of 400 million US dollars, probably up to 500 million by now. One of the things I sort of ask myself is what makes a film like this so popular? You know, there's clearly there's the music and there's a big ensemble dance and circus routines. There's Hugh Jackman, there's Zac Efron for younger folk. Um, but I think there's more. I think there's actually another layer to this kind of thing. And I think we find that often in film and in fiction. So we don't find so much in perhaps essays and, and uh, works of uh, history. So although quite sentimentalised and unrealistically positive, with a rather too easily achieved happy ending, the film brings to the fore many elements of the human condition. The world of Phineas Taylor Barnum is a divided and broken world. There are the elites who show disdain for the poor. There are the outcasts, people who are rejected because they are different from most other people. The young P.T. Barnum himself was raised in poverty, orphaned as a child, abused, shunned by the world to do, left homeless, but helped by the disabled and the poor. And he was a person with big dreams and a festering resentment. One of the, uh, the showstoppers in the film is a song, This Is Me, sung by uh, Kiala Settle, but who played the part of Letty Lutz, the bearded lady. And it had the ensemble of church performers. Uh, and the context is that they had been turned away from a party where P.T. Barnum is trying to impress the upper crust. He still wants to really be part of that after all. It's a powerful and, and passionate assertion of human worth. It's a desperate cry for recognition and acceptance. And isn't this a universal longing? Everyone wants somewhere they belong, a place that we can call home, to be accepted for who we are. And that's really the theme or the conceit of this particular song. There's words in it such as, I know there's a place for us, for we are glorious. This is me, and I know that I deserve your love, because there's nothing I'm not worthy of. This is who I'm meant to be. This is me. Now, I'm going to play um, a version of the song, sung by Kiala um, Settle, in a workshop, not in the actual film itself. And one of the reasons I chose this is that she has this look on her face that is worth seeing. A, a deep passion and there's times towards the end where she uh, looks to weep as she sings. This is a song that's really personal for her and I think in her face and her passion we see something of her deep desire, her deep longing. We can, we can see that this is a very human thing. So we probably need to crank the sound up to max for this.
Yes, it's rather good. Uh, if you weren't moved by that, obviously you have no heart, but it's just another issue. Um, you can see just in the face, you know, this is something deeply meaningful for her. It's not just a song to perform. And in some ways it kind of uh, perhaps is indicative of kind of uh, feelings, the desires, the longings that each human being has deep within. So I think then that one of the reasons the film has become so popular has hit a chord with many people is that it highlights the harsh realities of a fallen world, of human longing. It does it in entertaining and engaging ways, but it also offers hope. C.S. Lewis uh, expresses the universality of human desire, human longing, uh, this way in Mere Christianity. He says, I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And I think in many ways the film represents quite effectively this universal sense of unsatisfied desire. I think what it fails to do is understand what will actually satisfy that desire. Its search for satisfaction is a very earthbound one. And although I think the film falls short in this area, I also think that that's one of the reasons it's actually so popular in this day and age because it offers a solution to the problem of human longing that can be found without recourse to God and that can be realised by human effort alone. C.S. Lewis again in his book The Weight of Glory. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. And I think that's what we find in the song, This Is Me. Without realising or acknowledge it, this is where the film leaves us, with the, the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. The message of the film is ultimately much more hopeful than it has warrant to be. The satisfaction offered by P.T. Barnum, noble and wonderful as it is, can only be a temporary one. When thugs set fire to the theatre and Barnum squanders his money, hope seems lost. The circus performers say that it's not the fact that they've lost their livelihood that's their greatest concern, rather is that the circus was their home and its people their family, yet how easily it was all put at risk. What the world alone can offer is, to quote another song, never enough. So let me explore this idea a little bit further, just briefly. The great English poet of the late 18th, early 19th century, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, wrote these words. Tomorrow is my birthday, 31 years of age, oh me, my very heart dies. 
Why have I not an unencumbered heart? These beloved books still before me, this noble room, the very centre to which a world of beauty converges, the deep reservoir into which these streams and currents of lovely forms flow, my own mind so populous, so active, so full of noble schemes, so capable of realising them, oh, wherefore am I not happy? This is the thought also that we find in Ecclesiastes. So I became great, says the writer, probably Solomon, It surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and behold all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So in worldly terms, under the sun, all of this turns to nothing and is of no ultimate worth. It needs to somehow be not just restricted to being under the sun. Let's return to the encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus offers something that is not hampered or corrupted by external circumstances or the vicissitudes of life. He speaks of water metaphorically. Anyone living in that part of the world in the first century knew the importance of water. It had to be fetched. It had to be used carefully. People understood real thirst. So when Jesus speaks of living water, the Samaritan woman probably understood the import of the image much more powerfully than we do. The water from the well would satisfy physical thirst, but she would need to fetch more water tomorrow. The water Jesus was offering would satisfy the deepest desires and longings of the soul. It would satisfy spiritual thirst forever. But Jesus still needs to take this woman a little bit further to help her understand what he's really offering. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So what's Jesus doing here? What's going on? Well, Jesus in this exchange, I think, is not not trying to humiliate the woman. He's not trying to make her admit that she's a sordid sinner. I think far from it. His words are, in fact, an invitation. They're an invitation for her to see how she has been trying to satisfy her deepest longings. She has sought relationships with men as a substitute for living water. She's tried to find ways of finding significance and meaning herself without recourse to God. And as the conversation shows, her attempts have failed. Surely that speaks to us. Have we not, very often, perhaps even as believers, sought substitutes to meet the deepest desires and longings of our hearts without recourse to God in career? relationships and so on. 
Here she is on her fifth relationship. But she is right in one sense. It is a relationship that she needs in order to satisfy the desperate cries of her heart. She needs to love and be loved. She needs to belong and don't we all? Augustine put it this way, you God, he says, have made for us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Blaise Pascal put the same idea this way, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man and only God can fill it. I particularly like the way that Ravi Zacharias has expressed his deep need for human relationship. He says, if relationship brings meaning to life, if relationships bring meaning to life, then the ultimate mockery of life is the reality that all relationships are either ruptured by sin or severed by death. Each of us longs for a relationship that cannot be victimised by sin or destroyed by death. That relationship can only be found with God. And this is what Jesus is gently offering to the Samaritan woman. This is the spring of water welling up to eternal life. And eternal life is relationship with God, as Jesus himself declares in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, where he says in verse 3, And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And having made that point, then comes the clincher. He's offered the woman living water. He's made her aware of the inadequacies of the substitutes. But then the conversation turns to worship. Where should we worship? She asks. Mount Gerizim? Jerusalem. Response We see what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here, and is now here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, worship is not bound by geography or religious tradition. There are no physical restraints when it comes to accessing God. He is spirit. Therefore, acknowledging the worth of God, his greatness, his might, the depth of his love, his faithfulness, never needs a particular location or a particular form of words. Everyone worships. It's instinctive. It's part of who we are. It's part of our makeup as human beings. In the words of Tim Keller, everyone worships, everyone trusts in something for their salvation, everyone bases their lives on something that requires faith. In The Greatest Showman, the film we just a clip from, the social outcast looked to P.T. Barnum as their Messiah and the circus he created as their heaven. But Jesus offers a different answer, a permanent answer. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the clincher for her. She rushed off to tell others the good news. So it says, uh, the woman left her water jar and went away to the town, said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She's already answered the question for herself. She knows it is. 
she'd come to the realisation that the substitutes were never going to satisfy. Only the Christ was sufficient. I'm reminded again of the words that C.S. Lewis quoted earlier. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of the worshippers, for they are not the thing itself. The Samaritan woman had come to the realisation that Jesus Christ was the thing itself. Have we come to that same realisation? Jesus is still offering to us the same living water he offered the woman he met at the well in Sychar some 2,000 years ago. Let me finish with a few words from Ravi Zacharias. Man's primary pursuit should be God himself and all secondary and tertiary pursuits will fall into, into place. It is not accidental that the last paragraph of the last book of the Bible is punctuated with the word come. This is God's invitation. It's an invitation then, it's an invitation now. Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. If this is an invitation that we have accepted, then we'll be able to say with Don Wurtzen as he confronted death, as we, as he, a family member was called home, he said, but just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. Let's pray. Father, we know that we have deep longings, that they are inbuilt. You've given them to us as part of uh, being human. You've given us the capacity for relationships. You've given us the desire to belong, a, a need for a place to call home, a need for a depth of relationship that, that is pure and eternal. And Father, we know we can only find that with you. We thank you for the offer of living water, something that satisfies deeply and forever. And Father, we pray that we might live our lives as believers in the context of having received this, that it might be something that is part of the outworking of our everyday experience as we recognise that you have fulfilled our longings and our desires. Father, we pray for those who do not yet know you, those who have not accepted or received the living water, that they will be open to it, that they will recognise that their thirst is insatiable apart from you. And so we do thank you for the account of the woman in the, at the well in uh, Sychar and Samaria and we thank you for the offer that Jesus made. We thank you that offer still exists, prevails today. Father, we just commit ourselves to you and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.